Welcome to the sermon podcast of Exodus Church, located in Belmont, North Carolina. For more information about our church and the many ways you can be involved, please go to our website at theexoduschurch.org or email us at info at theexoduschurch.org. Now, if you turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning, we're going to be in Romans chapter 13 as we continue through our series called Re-Exodus. In this series, we want to remind ourselves of what we value even when things look different. We want to remember who we are and who we seek to be as a redeemed people who worship and serve God in the world even when the world looks different than what we're used to. Over the last few weeks during this series, we've learned and been reminded that gospel culture, I'm sorry, gospel doctrine creates gospel Christians who are then called to create gospel culture. And we've looked over the last two weeks in particular about the importance, the necessity for the church to build a gospel culture, and we begin to understand the attributes necessary to building that culture. So as we look at Romans 13 this morning, we will see the Apostle Paul continuing to call us and teach us to build that gospel culture, even though at first glance this morning, what Paul calls us to may seem almost anti-gospel culture for some of us. We see Paul take a concept or a word that make many of us uncomfortable, submission, or as it's literally translated, to make yourself subject to another. And he connects that word initially with another concept that in our cultural context today makes many of us uncomfortable, which is connecting submission to the concept of civil government. And so where some of us may initially say, how does that promote gospel culture? As we look at God's word this morning, what we will ultimately see is Paul's call to the church, Paul's instruction for us in building that gospel culture is not through mindless obedience to a man-made establishment, but rather it is full submission to our heavenly father. So we will see that gospel submission is essential to gospel culture. In fact, if I was going to sum up what I hope we get from our text this morning in one sentence, this is what I would say for us this morning. That gospel doctrine teaches us that Christ fully submitted to God the Father in order to create gospel Christians. Therefore, gospel Christians must live a life fully submitted to God in order to build gospel culture. And we'll see Paul unpack that for us in three ways. But first, let's look at Romans 13. I'm going to start by reading the first seven verses, and then I'm going to pray and we're going to get into God's word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Well, then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. So pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. And respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the hope that we have in the gospel. And Lord, we come to you knowing that we need you to transform our hearts and to bend our knees to submit to you. We ask this morning that you would continue to draw us to you, continue to change our hearts, continue to drive us towards and teach us how to build a gospel culture in order that the world may see the beauty and glory of Jesus. And we ask and pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. 
So gospel Christians are supposed to live a life of submission to God in order to create gospel culture. Now, Paul unpacks that for us in three ways. This morning, we see that that is submission to God's authority, submission to God's law, and submission to God's call. We see in the first seven verses, submission to God's authority. Now, as I've already acknowledged, I understand that the first few verses of our text this morning may create tension or angst for some of us because you are either frustrated and anxious because of our current political situation, because of all the stuff that we see on the news. And on the other side of that equation, this text may bring tension because you read this text and you think, well, this is an easy silencer to anyone who disagrees with our current political climate or with our current government. Regardless of political leanings, though, our text this morning starts off strong with Paul saying, for the Christian, there is hope, clarity, and direction. Because what Paul is doing is pointing us to God's authority over and above civil government. First, we see this in the context. Paul is writing this letter to a church in the Roman Empire, not only in the Roman Empire, in the very city of Rome. Historically speaking, if you, know in, if you know your history at all, the Roman Empire was far from a portrait of good government and good leadership. The empire was built on backstabbing and lying and overthrowing. And in fact, in this point in history, part of their political decree potentially was to hunt down and kill Christians and at very least viewing the gospel and Christians as a stain on society. So when Paul is saying, let every person be subject to governing authorities, he does not pause. He jumps right into saying, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So right off the bat, Paul is saying to the church, this is not a call to mindless obedience of of man-made establishments. This is not a call to, to... local patriotism. No, this is a call ultimately for Christians to put their trust and hope in the authority of a perfect God and perfect father so that they can live a life that reflects the goodness of God to the world and the community around them. In fact, when Paul says there is no authority except from God, in a lot of ways, what he is doing for the the original audience, for the original reader of this text, is he is combating a political notion that the emperor put in place, that the emperor was to hold divine status. He is establishing God's sovereignty over government, not God's consistency with government or our need, again, to mindlessly obey a government. No, rather he is encouraging the church, hey, we're going to be good citizens because there is no government that exists or has ever existed or that ever will exist that God and his sovereignty and authority did not put there. And every government that's not here anymore, God ordained the dismissal and the destruction of that government. And so he's actually combating the idea that the the civil government of the day was the ultimate power and rather pointing the church back to not only the authority of God, but the sovereignty of God over and above any man-made establishment that exists. Again, therefore, he says, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. He is saying to the church in this text, that regardless of who the emperor is, regardless of who's in power, regardless of who's in office or may be in office in the future, God is the one on the throne. There is one true ruler that rules over every nation, every country, every people, regardless of where they are or, or what their government situation looks like. God is the true king. And if you are a follower of Christ, here's the good news. Your citizenship 
is not limited to American citizenship. The churches wasn't limited to Roman citizenship. Rather, your citizenship is rooted in the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of man. And so he is saying, be subject to the governing authorities that God has sovereignly placed you under because, not in contrast to, but because God is your true ruler and your citizenship is the citizenship of heaven. Therefore, live in such a way that you validate the gospel that you preach and believe in order to build the kingdom of heaven and promote the kingdom of heaven on earth, even in the midst of a broken situation, or especially in the midst of a broken situation. We started this series in Romans 12, and in Romans 12, one and two, Paul says, do not be conformed to the ways of the world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and to paraphrase, by the power of the gospel. Our first few verses in the text this morning are a call to Christians to live that out. He's saying Rome was full of, dis- of, of, of being discombobulated, of, of dissension. Rome was full of backstabbing and, and destruction and chaos of people trying to overthrow and to break and to tear down. And what he's saying to the church is we need to build God's kingdom, a better kingdom, a kingdom of hope and peace and love. And that doesn't come from trying to mimic the world, rather that comes from being different, being set apart because of our hope and because of the authority of God, because of our submission to him, we seek to be that city on a hill, a redeemed people bringing redemption to a broken world. He's saying to the church, be transformed, don't be conformed. And part of being transformed, not conformed, part of being transformed by the gospel and living a transformed life in their context and in ours is being a citizen who is not committed to destruction and chaos, but rather committed to the welfare of the city, as Jeremiah 29 would say, or to the welfare of the community that they're in. Christians, the church, and subjecting to governing authorities is to look like the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, the meek, the peacemaker, versus those who seek to tear down peace and promote chaos. This all comes from us submitting to God, knowing God is sovereign over and above government. Now, we also see that God, in his goodness, in his sovereignty, has good purpose for government. Verses three through five, rulers are not a tear to good conduct, but to bad. Uh, Skip down to verses four and five, for he is God's servant for your good. He must be in subje- uh, He is meant to be an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God is not a God of chaos. God is a God of order. God is a God of peace. God wants peace in order for his people. And God knows his people better than his people know, that, know themselves. So in his common grace, he's established and ordained governments throughout history because man can't rule themselves. And he has good intent for government. Governments intended to promote order. Governments intended to to protect. Governments intended to carry out wrath on wrongdoings. And you can see in, in the Bible and throughout history, God can, has, and does work through broken governments and broken systems. Government is broken because it is affected by sin, just like everything else is. And yet God can, can and has, and will continue to use it. Now, that brings us to a slightly more complicated part of our passage this morning, which is, okay, God is sovereign over government. We're supposed to submit to God's authority. We see God's purpose for government, but what about when the government does not carry out God's intent for them? How do we interact with government? How should Christians interact with government? Well, look at verses 
5 through 7. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities and ministers of God attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is a complicated question and with a uh, complicated answer, but for the sake of time, I want to deal with, with two things very quickly. First, in verses five through seven, we're looking to the Bible for our answer. Well, Paul is very clear, just like Jesus is clear in verse 12, how we are to interact with our local government or, or local civil, sorry, just whatever the governing authority of the day is, we're to meet our financial obligation to them. We're to pay taxes, pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to who revenue is owed. Remember, Jesus has uh, rendered to Caesar uh, what is Caesar's. We're supposed to be law-abiding citizens because we have a higher authority and to honor him and to live out our faith in him, we obey the laws of the government that God has placed us under. Yet, and then he says, pay respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. Now, very quickly, I understand, and all you have to do is flip on the news right now, and you can see that there are people, groups of people, whether it's because of the color of their skin or socioeconomic background, political leaning, the list goes on and on, who have suffered and been hurt at the hands of people who have failed to either carry out God's plan for government, his intent for government, or have misused what God has given them. And the church needs to hear that and needs to be involved in bringing tangible redemption to those broken places. And not but, but and on the other side of that, you have Christian men and women. I think of all the police officers in our own congregation who are committed to God's intent for government, for protection, for bringing, avenging to wrongdoing, to bringing order and promoting peace. And they do what they do because they believe and desire to bring about God's intent for government. And they deserve respect and honor as well. So it's not one or the other, it's both and, which then, what happens, how should a Christian interact when the government, or if the government is, is calling for something or acting in such a way that it's no longer obedient to God or submissive to God for the Christian to obey the government? Well, we can answer that quickly by looking at just a few practical examples where in, some, in these cases, just a few in the Bible to start with, that civil disobedience isn't only permissible, but in those cases, the most obedient thing, the most submissive thing for a Christian to do in order to live in submission to God, you could look at Exodus 1. Pharaoh orders the killing of Hebrew baby boys and the maidservants disobey their civil authority. They say, we're not going to commit murder to those babies. And in fact, they put one in a basket, push him down the river. Moses is born in Pharaoh's house and winds up leading God's people to freedom. In the book of Daniel, in chapter three and chapter six, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and depending on how you pronounce his name, Abednego, who refused to worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, where Daniel refuses to stop praying. Even in the book of Acts, the Roman government tells the apostles, you can't preach the gospel of Jesus anymore. And they say, well, if that's the case, then we're gonna obey God over man. And they keep preaching. Then other examples from history, you might look at William Tyndale, whose government said, stop translating the New Testament into English. And he said, people need the gospel. I'm gonna keep translating. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who got on a boat in New York City, the last civilian boat that was sent out before World War II started to go all the way back to Nazi Germany in order to join Nazi intelligence in an attempt to create a plan to overthrow Hitler because when his heart was captured by the gospel, he said he could not believe in the love of Jesus and the power of the gospel and stand by and watch the unlawful murder 
of a race of people. And you could even look at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Howard Thurman, and other leaders of the civil rights movement who, based on what they saw the Bible teaching about man being made in the image of God, says we cannot stand for this injustice. So, if Christians have to disobey government in order to obey and submit to God, what does that look like? Well, in any of the examples I listed, very quickly, three key aspects. One, there is clear violation within the government of God's moral law and or an explicit call to stop preaching the gospel. There is an objective need for Christians to stand up against it. Second, the method of opposition chosen is not destructive and it does not promote chaos, but it is clear, it is focused, it's intentional. And then in any of the cases I mentioned, the, the people participating in that act of disobedience are rooted on a firm gospel foundation. They are driven by what the gospel explicitly teaches and calls Christians to. They do it with a gospel lens, looking at mankind not as enemies, but as people who need to be redeemed. And they do it with a redemptive goal and end in mind. That the mission of Jesus would be pushed forward by their act. So we live in submission to God's authority but to do so in a way that, that, that we truly need to, then that requires us also to know God's law or live a life in submission to God's law. Now, we have to move quickly, but the word law, especially in regards to God and the Bible, for some of us can bring up negative feelings, a, a bad taste in our mouth, or even some confusion, but Paul clears that up and he actually does it quickly in this text. He makes it clear that God's law and God's love are not contradictory, but rather not contradictory, but rather two sides of the same gospel coin. Look with me at verses eight through 10. It says, owe no one to anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or in any of the other commandments are summed up in this word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Very quickly, three things we should see about living in submission to God's law. Number one, that God gave us the law out of love. You think the first time you see the law as we know it, the 10 commandments is in the book of Exodus. God has already freed his people, already performed miracles for his people, already called Israel to himself. So the law is not a prerequisite for belonging to God. It is given to those of us who do belong to God so that we can know him and we can follow him. In fact, one pastor and writer says this, that God's law provides us with a moral transcript of God's moral character. It allows us to know what we need to know about the God that we're called to follow. It provides his people with a moral guide for how to live. It promotes both the physical and spiritual welfare of his people. And ultimately, God's law points us to the one who fulfilled the law for us in Jesus. Now, going from the law pointing us to Jesus, the second thing we need to see about submitting to God's law is God's law, according to verses eight and 10, is fulfilled by love. The greatest commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus didn't say these are the only commandments. He said these are the greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with everything that you've got and to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the motivating force behind the gift of the commandments, Love and law are interchangeable. One does not cancel or contradict the other. But ultimately, out of love, Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. 
He paid the debt that we owed, fulfilled the law's obligations that we couldn't keep in order that we might know him and, be, and, and have a relationship with God the Father and then see the law no longer as an oppressive thing or a crippling thing, but rather, rather as a God and something that also reminds us of how much our God loves us that Jesus would die in order to fulfill it for us. And then finally, according to verses eight and 10, God's law informs how we ought to love. In our culture today, the word love is probably the most thrown around, misused word I can think of. And everyone wants to say, all we need is love. We don't need anything else. We just need love. But here's the reality is that without clear, objective guidance, no one actually knows what love is or or how to do it right. It simply becomes a concept a concept that is based in nothing more than inconsistent feelings. But according to God's word, verses eight and 10 here, God's love is far from abstract and inconsistent. It's quite the opposite. It's bold, it's clear, it has a, a clear aim, which is the God's glory and the redemption of his people. Verse nine shows the reader practically how to apply verse 10. You obey the commandments, Right? You don't covet, you don't commit adultery, you don't murder, and any of the other commandments. Verse 10, you love your neighbor and you do no wrong to him. Verse nine informs verse 10. And now as we see we, our submission, our need to submit to God's authority and the gift that we have and the call to submit to God's law, then the Christian is empowered and equipped to submit their life to God's call. Very quickly, We're going to look at verses 11 through 14, God's call. Besides this, you know that the time and the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Submitting to God's call on our life, what is God's call? According to our text this morning, it is to live urgently for Jesus. The call of the Christian, first of all, is to surrender to the gospel. To say, I believe that Jesus died for my sins on a cross. And that he rose from the grave. And that he is returning one day to overthrow every corrupt thing. To undo every broken thing to put back together the things so that they are the way that God intended them to be and to do so in a way that it will never fall apart again and, for, and to bring his people, all of his people, under the good and perfect kingship and authority of our heavenly father. That is the gospel. And we surrender our life to that and, and then in response to this eternal hope that Jesus has given that we are saved by grace and that he's returning one day to set everything right, we live in our present day with eternity in mind. So because we have an eternal hope, we work here to build his kingdom and to promote that hope. And the way Paul words it this morning is that we live urgently. The night is fading, the hour has come. He literally says we're closer to Christ's return than when we first believed. Now that may seem obvious, but that doesn't mean it's not accurate. And the same is true for us today that with each day lived, we are one day closer to Jesus's return. And the call that we submit to is the call 
to live each day like the gospel matters and it is the most important thing and that today could be the day that Jesus returns. Therefore, everything about our life has to be about building that gospel culture that we will one day live in the perfect form of it when Jesus returns. We want people to see it and to be drawn to it. So we submit to God's authority. We submit to God's law. We submit to God's call on our lives. And what do we do with this? How does this look? Well, I have one thing. We are not capable of appropriately submitting or living a life of submission until we've submitted to Jesus. We can't submit properly to civil government. We can't submit to one another in relationships. None of that is possible until we submit our lives to Jesus because for us, submission is counterintuitive. We want to rule. We want to be in charge. We want to be our own God. But when we acknowledge that God offers us an invitation, when our hearts are melted by God's offer to surrender our lives to a perfect and incorruptible and loving father who loved us enough to give us his son to save us, from imperfect and broken things. Then we are able to live a life committed to building a kingdom better than any earthly kingdom, a kingdom that's committed not to ourselves or to opinions, but to the welfare of others, to the redemption of a world. That's the kingdom of God. That is a life, the the end goal of a life lived in submission to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word and for the call to submit, the call to bow our knees under under the rulership, the kingship of a king who loved us enough that he would sacrifice his own son to save us and for giving us the call and the mission to build a culture that promotes that love and that goodness and that grace to a world that needs it so desperately. Would you help us to continue to build that culture and to continue to submit because you are worthy of our trust, you are worthy of our submission. In Jesus' name, amen.